On a dark desert night. A small voice calls. Sister, will you tell us a tale? Jinn, Magians, Sultans, Buried Treasure. We're going to explore what they say about their cultures then and why they captivate us now. Light your lamp and pour some tea while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. We're going back into the Thousand and One Nights. Hopefully everybody is still as jazzed about this project as I am. I know I am. I just get more excited about the Thousand and One Nights the more we talk about it. What's funny is like a friend of mine was like, what do you think that you're going to have enough stuff to be telling them new information every week? And I'm like, <laughs> there's a thousand and one nights. I think like I think we can I think we'll be able to do twelve episodes in the year. I feel like that's up. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I just need to send that friend a picture of like the Penguins classic three volume set and be like yeah, I think we can find something. Not to mention in, in every single book that I am doing research on, there's like reference material on reference material on reference material that yeah. I can like go and look at and be like, oh, they talk about this like even more in depth, which is actually something that we're going to be talking about today because Marina Warner has a way in every single book that she writes where she'll like casually like throw out a reference to something as if like, oh, you've all read this before, right? And I'm like, no, Marina, I have not read that. <laughs> and then Add I, it to the list. Yeah, and so then I like go out. And so, yeah, I'm like, my collection of books and materials is just getting like fatter and fatter and fatter. Yeah, and not to mention the fact that there's just so much. So it covers obviously stories, but stories from a part of the world that doesn't really share so much of like a common history. But there is some, especially when you get into like religious history, because like when Islam comes into it with shared roots with like Christianity, which obviously our part of the world has a lot to do with, you know, Christianity and Judaism as well. You know, so there's that aspect, but then there's all this stuff that it's like, we don't know anything about because we didn't really learn about it that much in history class because we're so much more focused on history of the Western world. And then also, so you take the geography aspect of just, it's a different place. The history aspect of it was a long time ago, the cultural aspects. There's so many different ways that you can look at it that I think, you know, we're not, we're going to barely still be scratching the surface after 12 months of doing this. Oh, for sure. And actually that was like a a perfect intro to what I'm going to be talking about. Cause we are going to be going into some of the like shared religious history but also like where it diverts and we're going to be doing that by first before we get into the tale i'm going to be telling you a little bit about a major character that's always kind of playing in the background of these tales and so it's this covert presence Mm -hmm. and every now and then becomes more overt and that character is King Solomon. Oh. What I'm about to say about King Solomon is going to come nowhere close to exhausting the amount of things that could be said about King Solomon. But I'm going to try and give you what you need to know to understand the context of the beginning of the tale we're going to be telling today. So the main focus 
of talking about King Solomon is going to be surrounded around like one key question, which is what is King Solomon's relationship with the jinn? So if you are from the West, you are probably more familiar with the like one type of King Solomon. And if you are coming from the East, you might be familiar with a completely different version of King Solomon. And then there are some people who might only be familiar with the name through watching Indiana Jones. (laughs) And that's fine because we're going to get you caught up on this man. Chopping babies in half. We will get there. Yes, we will. Just, you've got to be patient for the baby chopping, Jeff. I know, it's so tough. So when it comes to the importance of knowing who King Solomon is, Marina Warner in her book Stranger Magic says, The myth of Solomon's relation with this distinctive order of being, the jinn, forms the deep and familiar background of the knights. It did not need to be spelt out by the storyteller, but could be dropped into a plot where the focus lies elsewhere, on the fisherman's cunning and his ultimate salvation, for example. Shahrazad and the real-life narrators who followed her could assume the audience knew the backstory. But we today cannot <laughs> assume that same thing anymore. So especially with a character like King Solomon, who means different things to different religions and different regional cultures. So I'm going to give you some mythological background. And when I say mythological, I want you guys to know that I'm not using mythological to mean like magical, superstitious, like didn't really happen, whatever. I Again, when we talk about mythologies, it's a it's. It means like a religious story. So King Solomon is a religious mythological character. But interesting fact, the majority of biblical scholars agree that he was a real person. The thing that most scholars vary on is to what extent the biblical accounts and other stories about him are real. Like, how much wealth did he really have? And how much land did he really control? Like, how big was his, like, empire? Whatever. We're not debating those things right now. That's not what today is about. (laughs) But if you want to know if there was a King Solomon who ruled near the time that the Old Testament said that he did, the answer is yes. So when I say mythological, I'm not discrediting anybody's religious beliefs. It's more of an inclusive word than anything else. So King Solomon is talked about in the Old Testament, the Talmud, the Quran, and the Hadiths. So that's holy writings from a whole bunch of major world religions. And those aren't even the only religious books that he's mentioned in. So the story of King Solomon, it starts off the same for everyone. There's King David in the Old Testament. He had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba, and she got pregnant. King David essentially had her husband killed in a battle so that he could marry Bathsheba. God obviously was not cool with this. He's not cool with (laughs) loopholes. And he's like, no, that's not okay. And so the baby that Bathsheba was pregnant with died as a punishment from God. But then King David eventually kind of like worked stuff out with God and Bathsheba got pregnant again. And that baby was Solomon. She had other babies with King David. We're talking about Solomon. And Solomon eventually became the king. Again, I'm cutting out 
a whole bunch of like royal intrigue and murder yeah. and all this other political maneuvering that happened. I'm just telling you, King Solomon, like he became the king. Yeah. And one of the things that you're cutting out that I do think is important that I heard is that um, David played a secret chord <laughs> that pleased the Lord. <laughs> I don't really care for music. Do you? I do. It's very important. To me. <laughs> That was perfect. I love that because I truly thought that you were about to say, I was like, oh no, did I, like, was there something in there that's going to play into it that I like didn't bring out? Because I 100% was thinking about that song, like when I was like doing the stuff. Yeah, and then I was how can like, you not? Yeah. But then I was like, oh, I don't need to talk about King David too much. And so I was like, never mind, that won't work. So I won't do it. So I'm glad that you did and that you tricked me into thinking that you were about to say something that was like super important. That, that actually brought substance to this podcast. You should know better than that. <laughs> I was like, he's about to say something insightful. And you're like, no. So after Solomon became king, he had a dream one night where God came to him and God asked King Solomon what he wanted most of all, what King Solomon wanted most of all. Not God wasn't like, what do I want most of all? <laughs> That'd be weird. And King Solomon told him that what he really wanted was wisdom. And God was really pleased with this request because he didn't ask, you know, to like live forever or to have like unlimited riches, which I thought was pretty interesting because King Solomon already had pretty unlimited riches. So he taxed his people pretty heavily. So anyway, King Solomon said that he wanted wisdom, and so God granted him that re request because he liked it so much. And there's actually a very famous story about King Solomon, Jeff alluded to earlier. There's a really famous story about King Solomon's wisdom where two women, I believe in the story they're prostitutes, sex workers, is what we're going to call them. But two women came to King Solomon claiming that this one baby was theirs. There had been two babies. One of the babies had died, but then both women wanted to lay claim to the living baby. So there were no DNA tests back then. And so this, Maury Povich. <laughs> you are not the mother. So there were no DNA tests back then. And so King Solomon said that the best way to deal with the problem is just to cut the baby in half and then each take half the baby. So the first woman quickly agreed to this, but the second was rightly horrified <laughs> and said that the first woman could just have the baby. Just please don't cut it in half. And then King Solomon knew from the reaction of the second woman that the baby had to be hers because she didn't want the baby to be harmed, even if she didn't get to keep the baby. And so that woman was granted full custody of the child. So that was like an example of like King Solomon's wisdom. So King Solomon is also famous for the first temple of Jerusalem, King Solomon's temple. It holds the Ark of the Covenant. Again, if anybody has seen Indiana Jones. <laughs> tying, tying all of these in. Yeah. I'm like, whatever angle you are coming at with knowledge, we welcome you. And we're trying to just give you a little more knowledge. And he's also credited for being the leader of the kingdom of Israel in the golden age of the independence of the kingdom of Israel. And we'll get back to talking about the temple of Solomon in a little bit. So hold on to that nugget. In the Old Testament, he's credited with several books. Proverbs, 
because he was super wise. Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. So the Song of Solomon gets a little bit tricky. (laughs) And it might be a good little link between where things kind of split off between people because it all kind of revolves around King Solomon's sexiness. And so the Song of Solomon makes for some very sexy scriptures. What's really interesting, I got this quote from the HarperCollins Study Bible. It says, in the traditional Jewish understanding, the song, the book, is a religious allegory reconnecting God's love for Israel and the history of their relationship. For Christians, it is an allegory of Christ's love for the church. These allegorical interpretations enabled the song to become sacred scripture. So basically, the sexiness in this scripture was something that a lot of religious leaders felt uncomfortable dealing with on a spiritual level. And so they turned it into like an allegory so that it could still be used in a spiritual sense. Right. (laughs) And that is their prerogative. Let me read you some of... Um, this is scripture that is spoken as if a, a woman is saying it. Upon my bed at night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. I will rise up now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The sentinels found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the wild does, do not stir up nor awaken love until it is ready. So the Song of Solomon is full of like loving and sexy poetry. Mm-hmm. And it's a relatively short book, but yeah, it of course it made religious leaders a little bit uncomfortable uh, of knowing kind of like what to do with that scripture, how much like attention to give it. Um, but King Solomon's sexiness is part of the reason why he is such an interesting like religious figure. So he started to have relationships with a woman or women from foreign lands, in quotes, who worshipped idols and other gods, and he started to participate in these activities and turn away from God. And so his kingdom started to go and everything started to fall apart from there for him. But here's where it gets interesting, because in the Islamic tradition, they do not think that King Solomon turned away from Allah to worship idols and other gods at all. They think that King Solomon was replaced by an evil jinn or demon who is the one who was worshiping idols and pulling away from God. So we've we've circled back. We've circled back, guys, to jinn. Wow. We did it. Thank you for taking this ride with me. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for trusting me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm glad because that's super fascinating. So apparently in the Quran, and this is in quotes, the Muslim Solomon understands the language of beasts and birds and commands the winds and the elements. He rules over the higher order of angels and above all is given mastery over the innumerable spirits, the jinn, who exist invisibly alongside angels, humans, and animals and form a distinct order of beings. 
elemental and mortal, metamorphic, physical and morally, shifting between states of visibility and invisibility, capable of redemption and goodness, yet, for the most part, especially in the stories of the knights, capricious, arbitrary, and amoral. And most importantly, susceptible to death by a single date pit thrown at them. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, like if you want to kill a djinn, apparently just have a single date pit that goes just awry. And that was a quote from Stranger Magic by Marina Warner. So I'm about to tell you a rapid fire retelling of the Testament of Solomon. I'm going to warn you right now, Jeff. It is going to sound like the backstory of an episode of Supernatural. (laughs) I'm in. You've got to know that's that front. So everybody simply imagine that Jeff is Sam and or Dean. And I am Charlie Bradbury, played by Felicia Day. (laughs) So the Testament of Solomon was probably circulating in some form around the first century A.D. So this is a while after... King Solomon was actually alive. Right. Yeah. But the story is still credited back to him and written in a way as if King Solomon is just like writing about this interesting thing that was happening. And so the story was circulating and it was not probably put down in the form that we have it today until the medieval period. And also theologically, this story is kind of all over the map. It has stuff in it that makes it sound like, wait, is this like a Christian book? Is this a Gnostic book? Is this a Jewish book? And it's like, no, this it's 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 a lot. It's a if you if you read it, it's a lot of just stuff all mixed together. Interesting. It's a trip, guys. <laughs> so The scene opens with King Solomon, and he is in the middle of constructing the first temple of Jerusalem, King Solomon's temple. So I told you to hang on to that nugget earlier, and now we're here. This is when you needed that nugget. So King Solomon is in the middle of doing this thing. He's trying to figure out how all of this temple is going to come together because it's almost completed, but there's some complicated construction stuff happening that he doesn't quite have the technology for. So one of his favorite advisors is slowly withering away, getting Mm. like thinner and weaker. So Solomon goes to him and he's like, what is going on? Don't I pay you enough to eat? (laughs) Like he like literally says that. It literally says, do I not love thee more than all the artisans who are working in the temple of God? Do I not give thee double wages and a double supply of food? How is it that day by day and hour by hour thou growest thinner? So he like literally <laughs> is like, don't I pay you enough to eat? Which I thought was hilarious because when my husband was getting like sicker and sicker, like six years ago, he was losing weight really fast at work. And his boss actually came to him. Because Aaron didn't know this at the time, but some of his coworkers were really worried that maybe he was like anorexic or there was something going on. Yeah. And so his his boss came to him and was like, hey, Aaron, you're losing a lot of weight. Don't we pay you enough? <laughs> <laughs> and Aaron was like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just like losing weight. And it turned out it was because he was dying. <laughs> I laugh because he didn't, guys. I don't want anyone to think I'm like, like, (laughs) he was dying. Hilarious. Like hilarious. Uh, So, yeah, I just thought I was like, wow, that 
This is like scripture. It speaks to my soul. No. So the guy was like, well, okay. Every night when I go to lay down and rest, I'm visited by a vampire demon that is sucking the life force out of me through my right thumb. (laughs) Boom. Supernatural. (laughs) Sam and Dean. Like I told you. I told you it was coming up. Vampire demon. No one can say I didn't warn you. I told you what it was going to sound like. Okay. That's hilarious. It's like, and you didn't think to tell anyone about that before now. Like you're just letting this happen every night. Like (laughs) every night. No big. He's like, man. Yeah. He's like this vampire demon just like comes and sucking the life force right out of my thumb, which I thought it was hilarious too, (laughs) that it was like sucking on his thumb as if it's like an, like a baby or something. It's like, what in the world? But anyway, that's how it was doing it. Okay. So Solomon is horrified when he hears this. And so he goes into the almost completed temple and he prays to God for help to defeat this vampire demon. So God sends down Michael, the archangel, to talk to King Solomon and give him a ring. Not just any ring. The ring has a seal or a brand on it with a pentalpha or a pentagram Uh. on it, which is like one of the oldest, like, religious symbols in the world. I saw Donald Duck in Mathematic Land. I know the deal. You know it. So Michael says that God is giving King Solomon this ring that has the power to lock up demons and have control over them to command them, and that he can also use the ring to help him command the demons to help him finish building the temple. So, boom, King Solomon is now a demon hunter, just like the Winchester (laughs) brothers. I told you. This is legit. King Solomon then gives his advisor the ring and is like, when this vampire demon comes to you, trap him and bring him to me. The advisor does this and catches the demon and brings it to King Solomon. And King Solomon is like, who are you, demon? And the demon is like, I am Orneus, the fierce. I have three forms. I won't do the voice the whole time I'm speaking for him. (laughs) So he says, I come to men as a beautiful woman and I take hold of them in the night and play with them. Which, Uh... as a brief aside... (laughs) There are a lot of demons in mythologies around the world that do this with men. We haven't gotten into it much on the podcast at all, but there are two reasons for them. Uh, One of them is as a way to explain wet dreams. The second is to explain sleep paralysis. This episode is not about discussing those two issues, so we'll move quickly away from (laughs) that. So... The other form that Orneus, the demon, the vampire demon takes is he says he can come in the form of a lion. And he also, the other form is he has wings that help him to fly up in the air so that he can have complete command of all the demons. So he is the leader of the demons because he is the offspring of the archangel of God, Uriel. Who you may also know from Supernatural. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, like again. So King Solomon brands Orneus with the seal of the ring and demands that Orneus goes down to cut stone for the temple along the shore of the Sea of Arabia. And then when Orneus starts to complain, Uriel comes down from heaven and makes sure he gets back to work. (laughs) Don't make me call your dad, man. Don't make me call your dad. So then he demands that Orneus go down to the demons 
to get them to come to King Solomon so that they can help him with the rest of the construction of the temple. The temple. So Ornius goes down to Beelzebub and is like, King Solomon wants to see you. And Beelzebub is like the king of like all the demons. Uh So it's like Ornius was like the leader of the demons as like a general. Right. But Beelzebub is like the king of the demons. So Beelzebub is like, wait, who is this guy, King Solomon? I have never heard of this loser. And Ornius like throws the ring of King Solomon onto Beelzebub's lap and is like, King Solomon wants to see you now. And Beelzebub is like screaming is like, no, crap, this ring is so powerful. (laughs) So what's coming up next is a really big like who's who in the angel and demon world. And like this long, long list of how to gain control over the demons, what the demons individually, each one of them does and how to banish them and all that. And we are glossing over that because. It has nothing to do with what we are talking about today. So all of those demons now are in charge of helping in some way King Solomon put together the temple. So what you need to know is that through the power of the ring, King Solomon controls all of these demons and he gets them to do his bidding, whether they like it or not, and they help to finish the construction of this temple. But there is one last really big stone that King Solomon is like, I don't know how I'm going to get this to work. Like, I don't know how I'm going to get this thing up there. None of the other demons are like powerful enough to control it. So in walks a messenger from the king of the Arabians. And the messenger says, we have heard that you, King Solomon, have command over the spirits of the air, the earth and under the earth. We have a really bad, horrible, terrible wind demon that is blasting harsh and terrible. We can't see. We can't open our mouths to eat. There's no water. We need your help to catch this demon. Can you help us? And King Solomon is like, uh, yeah, no problem. I'll just send like my advisor, like with my ring. We'll be out later today. No, no biggie. Like King Solomon the whole time is acting like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. Side quest for whatever. I still have to like sort out this temple thing. Uh So King Solomon gives the ring to his advisor along with a wine skin. And a wine skin is it's usually made out of like animal stomach Uh because it's like it's a waterproof um, container to carry different liquids like wine. Right. So he gives him this like wine skin and the ring. And he's like, okay, so like when, just when you get out to Arabia, just hold the ring over the mouth of the wine skin and command the demon to like come to the ring. And that should like sort out the problem. And the advisor's like, okay, sounds good. So the advisor gets out there. He does exactly what King Solomon tells him to do. The demon wind spirit flies through the ring straight into the wineskin pouch. And the advisor brands the wineskin with the seal of Solomon. And now the wind demon is trapped. And so he gets transported back to King Solomon. So the demon is trapped inside of this wineskin, screaming and cursing and just super like angry. And King Solomon is like, if you want to get out, all you have to do is promise to behave and help me get the final stone placed in my temple. And at first the demon is like, no, leave me in this (laughs) wineskin. I'm happy here. Yeah, he's like, no, I don't want to help you. 
You're the worst. But pretty soon he decides that he doesn't want to spend his whole existence inside of this, like, wineskin. <laughs> and so he promises to help King Solomon finish his temple. So he gets let out. And he lifts this stone up into the air, and the stone is fitted into place, but it's always like just floating in the air because it's being held there by an invisible wind demon. And you will know when we have entered into the last age of the world when that stone no longer floats over the temple because the jinn and demon are now roaming free over the earth. So there's some other stuff that happens in that story. If you want to look it up, it's not a super long read. It's like an hour long read. If anybody wants to look up and find the Testament of Solomon for themselves and finish up the stories, but that's what we need to know background wise, because it's what people would have known background wise when they were telling the story that we're about to tell. So remind me this Testament of Solomon is what exactly? Like it's not in the Bible. Mm -mm. So it is definitely not in the Bible. (laughs) So this story, it's associated with the story in the Old Testament. I like to think of it as like Old Testament fan fiction. Mm. And I feel comfortable saying that and not offending anybody because it is not anyone's canonical scripture. Right. And this is a story you were saying was like had been floating around. As far back as like the first century AD. Yes. And in, in like different forms. And so chances are, is that every group kind of had a story that was similar that catered to their specific group. Right. Where like, for instance, when they're naming a bunch of, like, the names of the demons and stuff, there are some of these demons that the only way to defeat them is uh, the angel Emmanuel, who will be born of a virgin, that mm. will, like, die on a cross. So that's obviously very, like, Christian referenced. Yeah. But then there are, like, there are some stuff that's like associated with the different groups. So probably what was happening was everybody liked that story. Every group kind of liked that story and catered it to fit their own needs. Yeah. But then when it kind of morphed into like one big tale, like one complete start to finish tale that was written down in the medieval period, it was basically just taking some of like the major parts from all of that and mashing them together. That's crazy. Into like the written down part. And so it's like, it has Christian themes and Greek influence and Jewish traditions mashed into it. Yeah. And so it's just like, it's a, just a very bizarre For sure. religious, like fan fiction almost. Yeah. It's nuts. It's like demons helping to build like a temple. Like, it's just like, what is going on in this story? Yeah. It's interesting. I'm a, I'm a fan. Yeah. No, especially like, in relation to like how Christians view King Solomon now, they don't really associate him with having mastery or friendship relationships with the demons. Yeah. Not that's, really. Yeah, like that's not that's <laughs> not like the the thing that Christians associate with him. Which is why I wanted to give some backstory before we go further into the knights, because the name gets mentioned a lot. And it's 
it's unusual. And like, if you have, if you have no frame of reference, it's one of those things where when you go to read it, you read that and you're like, am I missing something? It like just it's completely like, throws you off. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, just like this idea of like, I think I'm missing something. It's like, you are missing something. <laughs> you're missing the knowledge of who King Solomon is inside the universe of the knights. Right. It's like if you were watching, you know, all the Marvel movies, but you skip like Age of Ultron and then you're like, wait a minute, why are Captain America and Tony Stark fighting? You're like that. They don't fight. They're a team. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's like you feel like you missed one of the a key moment in, in the story. And you're like, but I'm yeah. pretty sure I saw all of them. Yeah. It, it like <laughs> or it's I'm like, it's almost like even worse than that, because it's almost like. You decided that, you know, you you had been refusing to see any Batman movie ever, but then you decided to go see like Batman versus Superman. <laughs> right. And you're and you're like, wait, I thought I had some idea of what was going on because you had heard about like Michael Keaton's Batman. <laughs> right. And now you're watching Batman versus Superman. And you're like, wait, I I think I missed something. <laughs> it's like, yeah, they're not even in, like, they have the same name, but they're not in the same. Yeah, not even, like, really the same universe. Cinematic universe, yeah. yeah. It's like, funny. no, these are, they have the same name, but they're separate stories and people all together. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm very much looking forward to King Solomon references in this story now that I know the story that I need to in order for it to make any sense to me at all. Yes. Good. So we are actually on night three, still, from where we last left off. We're not always going to go in a sequential order, just so people know. Or this will take 101. <laughs> a thousand and one. A thousand and one. Ooh. So um, is night oh, three yes. the one where she, like, left him hanging and then, like, finished the story in, like, three seconds at the beginning of that third night and was like, hey, but let me tell you another story now. Yeah, so that is, Jeff, where where we're at, because it was, for his part, the merchant went and thanked the old men who congratulated him on his safety, after which each of them went home. This, however, is not more surprising than the tale of the fisherman. And that is what I'm about to tell y'all. I have heard, O oh fortunate king, that there once was a poor elderly fisherman with a wife and three children who was in the habit of casting his net exactly four times each day. And we've talked before about like the rule of three, but I have a note from the National Geographic set of stories of the Arabian Nights, which is a fun little read. Gorgeous pictures. I recommend it. But the quote I have from them says, four is the righteous number in many ancient Islamic cultures. The ear needs four instruments for the best music, lute, harp, zither, and double flute. Oh, that's debatable. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Right. <laughs> the soul needs four books for support, the Torah, Psalms, the Gospel, and the Quran. A table needs four legs for support. A man can take four wives or fewer. <laughs> Good to know. So the number four is actually like more important in this culture, which I think right. is interesting since we talk yeah. so much about like the rule of threes and the rule of threes does show up within the nights, but also things happening 
four times pops up in the nights as well. So this fisherman was in the habit of casting his net exactly four times every day. So at noon, he went out and he cast his nets and he felt the net sink to the bottom and then he waited to pull it in and he felt something super heavy and he was like, yes, I did it. (laughs) So he starts pulling in stuff, thinking he's got a good catch. And when he pulls it all the way in, it is a dead rotting donkey. Oh, man, that's not what you want to see. No, and he actually says, and this is like just one of my favorite quotes, this is a strange thing that God has given me by way of food. (laughs) So he's planning (laughs) on eating it. No, he was being like very sarcastic. Gotcha. Like, oh, thanks for nothing, God. So the donkey ended up like ripping a hole in his net, which was extra frustrating because then he had to sit and fix his net. And then he threw it in again, waited for it to sink to the bottom, started pulling it in. And again, it was super heavy. And he was like, okay, here we go. This will work this time. This is great. So he pulls it in, and it was a big jar full of sand and mud. <laughs> and he is like, oh, what in the world? So he starts reciting some poetry, which we don't have time for because there's so much poetry inside the nights, <laughs> but some of it really resonates with me. Um, just about, you know, luck and, you know, fate and fortune. So he's frustrated. He throws his net in again for the third time. And he waited for sink to the bottom. It felt heavy again. He was like, okay, here we go. He pulls it in and it is full of broken cookware and old animal bones. Hmm. And he says, oh, my God, you know that I only cast my net four times a day. I have done this thrice and got nothing. So this time, grant me something on which to live. So he calls on the power of God to help him. And he throws out his net a fourth time. And he starts pulling it in. And it snags on something on the bottom of the Oh, man. So he's like, okay, well, that's that's me for today. So (laughs) he strips off his clothes and he dives into the water because he has to get his net back because it's the only way that he has to, like, make his living. So he dives to the bottom of the water and he gets it untangled and he drags it back in. And when he starts to get closer to shore, he's feeling a little bit of weight on the net and he's like okay wait wait maybe we got something maybe we got something maybe it's a fish which is better than zero fish i guess so when he gets back to shore and he pulls his net in all the way he discovers that there is a brass bottle with a lead seal imprinted with the inscription of our master solomon the son of david oh there we go So he sees this brass bottle and he was like, yes, I can take this to the brass market and I could probably get like 10 gold dinars at the brass market for this bottle. That is great. Then I can buy something that's not fish for food. Yeah. Even better, this day is turning around. But the bottle feels heavy and he starts wondering what is inside this bottle that is so heavy. I don't want to give 
I don't want to sell this brass if it's full of something that might also be worth money. So I'm going to figure out what's inside this bottle before I sell it. So he grabs his knife and he starts working away at the lead seal of Solomon until he pops the top off the container. And instantly smoke starts coming out of the bottle and it materializes into a massive, terrifying figure. And immediately I was like, 10,000 years can give you such a crick in the neck. <laughs> because it was, of course, a massive Efrit or genie. So in the story, it says his head was like a dome. His hands were like winnowing forks and his feet like ship's masts. He had a mouth like a cave with teeth like rocks, while his nostrils were like jugs and his eyes like lamps. He was dark and scowling. And the poor fisherman was like beside himself with terror. <laughs> uh, yeah. Obviously. Yeah, dang. So when the Efrit saw the man, he immediately like bowed down low and started saying, there is no God, but the God of Solomon, his prophet, prophet of God, do not kill me for I shall never disobey you again in word or in deed. And the fisherman is standing there like super confused because he is for sure not King Solomon. <laughs> And so he says, King Solomon died 1,800 years ago, and we're currently living in the last age of the world. But what is your story, and how did you get into this bottle? And the Ifrit was like, oh, wow, I had no idea that I was in that bottle for that long. <laughs> and he's like, guess what? I have some really great news for you, buddy. He literally says that to him. He's like, I have some really great news for you. I guess he doesn't say buddy. So I guess <laughs> I did add that on my own. But he said, I have some really great news for you. And the fisherman was like, what's that? And the djinn was like, I'm going to let you pick the way that you want me to kill you. Oh, great. <laughs> and the fisherman was like, whoa, okay, what? What did I do to deserve this? I pulled you from the bottom of the sea. I just saved you. And the genie was like, you wanted to hear how I got into that bottle. Let me tell you, I was one of the apostate jinn that rebelled against Solomon, the son of David, on both of whom be peace. Solomon sent his vizier to fetch me to him under duress, and I was forced to go with him in a state of humility to stand before Solomon. Ah. So the jinn had absolutely refused to work with King Solomon, and so he had been condemned into the bottle, and the ring seal was imprinted on the lead top of the bottle. And the other jinni who were loyal to Solomon took the bottle and threw it into the sea. <laughs> so the jinn said that as he was in that bottle, he had thought to himself, in the first hundred years, he thought to himself, whoever frees me from inside here, I will give them wealth to last them for their whole life. And after he'd been in there for 200 years, he said, if somebody comes and rescues me in the next hundred years, I will give them all the treasures of the earth. And after he had been in the bottle for 400 years, he said, <laughs> 
whoever frees me from inside this bottle, I will promise that I will grant them three wishes. That sounds like the genie we know. That sounds like a genie we know. After 500 years, he was like, that's it. The first person who opens this, I'm going to murder them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So at this point, he... You know, he's been in there 1,800 years. He is, like, beyond, like, hey, guess what? For your prize, you have won the gracious opportunity to choose how you are going to die. And so the fisherman pleaded with him. He was like, do not try to kill me, or God will place you in a path of someone who is capable of destroying you. Um, And, of course, the djinn was like... Okay, buddy, whatever. I don't care. Tell me how you want to die or I'm going to pick it myself. And the fisherman again says, I have done you good and you're repaying me with evil. Do not try to kill me or God will place you in the path of someone who is capable of destroying you. And then the fisherman does like a quick little aside that I love where he's like, God has given me sound intelligence, which I can use to find a way of destroying him. Whereas (laughs) he can only use his vicious cunning. It's like, I love his little like aside. And he's like, good thing I'm intelligent. (laughs) And it is a good thing he's intelligent. And the fisherman said, are you definitely decided that you are going to kill me? And the genie was like, no, definitely for sure I am going to do that. And the fisherman said, I conjure you by the great name inscribed on the seal of Solomon and ask you to give me a truthful answer to a question that I have. And the genie was like, okay, sure. Go for it, buddy. <laughs> like, Just be quick because I want to kill you and move on. I've got stuff to do. <laughs> so the fisherman says, you say you are in this bottle, but there is not room in it for your hand or your foot, much less all the rest of you. And the genie was like, wait, you don't think that I was really in this bottle? <laughs> and the fisherman's like i mean it was really smoky and cloudy so like i don't know and he was like i can't believe it until i see it with my own eyes and the djinn was like (laughs) okay fine i'll show you and the djinn turned into a cloud of smoke over the water and then entered back into the bottle and quickly the fisherman shoved the lid with the seal of solomon on it back (laughs) onto the bottle so then the fisherman says to the djinn Okay, now it's your turn to tell me how you want to die. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. For for I am going to throw you right back into the water where I found you. And then I'm going to build a house by the water so that my whole life I can stop people from fishing on the spot. And I will tell them there is an Ephraim in there who will give you your choice of death if you pull him out. (laughs) And the djinn was like, okay, okay, okay. That was all a joke. Like I was just messing with you. I wasn't really going to kill you. (laughs) And the fisherman was basically like, yeah, right. You're an absolute liar. I told you that if you spared me, God would spare you. But if you tried to kill me, God would place you in the power of someone who would destroy you. And that person happens to also be me. (laughs) (laughs) And the djinn was like, no, 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 no. I promise that if you let me out, I will be good and I will grant you loads of riches, riches beyond what you can possibly imagine. And the fisherman was like, no, this is just like the wicked vizier of King Yunnan and Duban the sage. And the djinn said, what is this story? I know it not. So King Yunnan, super wealthy, super dignified. He's got this huge army. He's a really great leader. 
but he's also a leper and he's been suffering through leprosy for a long time. And he's had people come in to try to cure his leprosy with different medicines and ointments and all this stuff. And nobody has been able to cure it. But there was this elderly physician who they called Dubon the Sage. He'd studied books from like every culture, from the Greeks, from the Persians, from Arabs, Syrians. Just He was a master of medicine, astronomy. You know, he could talk about anything and everything. He knew just all the stuff. So he comes into the city and, you know, he hears about the king because it's kind of one of the big talks of the town. It's like, oh, the king's been like suffering through this leprosy for a long time and no one can help him. And so Dubon hears this and he spends the night thinking. He's like, okay, how am I going to solve this problem? So the next morning he gets up, he gets all dressed in his best clothes, goes to see the king, kisses the ground in front of him and starts spouting off this really elegant little speech, wishing the king good fortune and good luck and all this stuff. And he brings up the fact that, hey, I heard that you got this leprosy that no one's been able to heal. It's like, I think that I'll be able to heal it without any medicine to drink or without rubbing you all over with all these ointments. What do you think about that? And Yunnan was like, yeah, that sounds great. I'm sick of them, like, making me drink this nasty stuff and, like, rubbing me with all this greasy garbage and it not doing anything. So it's like, if you can do it, dude, I'm going to shower you with favors. I'm going to grant all your wishes. You're going to be my best friend. I'm going to give you tons of money. You're going to be set. Golden shower, I hope. (laughs) And so Dubon is like, to hear is to obey. So the next day we're going to do this thing. So Dubon goes into the city, rents a house, puts all his books and his medicines and his drugs in there. And then he's like, hmm, how are we going to do this? So he gets a polo stick and he starts rubbing the medicine onto the polo stick. And then he spends the rest of the night crafting a ball to use as a polo ball. It's like, okay. So the next day he goes before the king again, kisses the ground in front of him. And he's like, all right, here's what you got to do. Take this stick go out to the polo grounds and play a game of polo and just hold on to the stick, start playing polo and hitting this ball all around. And when you start to sweat, the medicine and the drugs that I put on the handle of this polo stick will start to enter your body and it'll heal you. So once you start sweating, go back to the palace, take a bath, wash off and go to sleep. And in the morning you'll be cured. That's all you got to do. So the king's like, all right, this is the funnest way to cure leprosy I've ever heard of. So he goes out, starts playing polo, starts sweating, and he's like, you know what? I think it's time to go and wash off and rest. So the king does so. He goes back to his palace, takes a bath, and falls asleep. So the sage goes back to his own house, spends the night, and then in the morning goes back to see the king. And once again, as he does, he kisses the ground in front of his feet and starts spouting poetry off to him. And then afterwards, the king stands up and just goes and gives Dubon a huge hug because he was like, as soon as I left the baths and washed off, like all the leprosy sores and stuff just like went away. Like everything was great. I was healed in the morning. I came out and everyone was like just staring at me because they couldn't believe that this worked. So true to his word, the king is like, dude, I love you. You're my best friend. Let me give you all this money. Let me give you some great clothes. Let me give you all these gifts. You're going to spend the day here eating with me. We're going to have a great time. So after they've been hanging out, eating all day, the king sends Dubon the sage back to his own house on a horse that the king also gifted him. And 
Dubon's feeling pretty good about himself, and the king, like, lays down at night thinking, man, Dubon did me such a solid. I love that guy. The next day, Dubon comes back. The king comes out with a new swagger. Like, Cusco in the emperor's new groove, just dancing and grooving about the palace, sits down, and he's looking around at his viziers and stuff. He's like, hey, where's my BFF Dubon? Get that guy over here. So they send for him, and Dubon comes. Again, kisses the ground before the king. King gets up and just gives him a huge hug. Starts giving him all these other gifts and gives him some, like, robes of honor, some more money. And then, you know, they hang out. Dubon goes home. And then the next morning, the king gets up, sits down again. Can't stop talking about how great Dubon is. Some of the viziers, one in particular, who is described as a, quote, ugly and ill-omened man, who is base, miserly, and so envious that he had started to see Dubon as a bit of a problem. He was not happy that Dubon was being showered with all these gifts. And so he starts plotting to do something bad to Dubon. So this vizier takes a couple of tricks out of Dubon's book and kisses the ground in front of the king's feet. And he's like, King, you know, I'm so grateful to have been in your service all this time, surrounded by your bounty. I've got some advice for you, and I feel like to keep it from you any longer would just not be the right thing to do. I feel like there's something I really have to tell you. And then Yunan, the king's like, oh, yeah, what is it? Come on. I I need to hear this advice. So the vizier's like, hey, I just want you to know that I've seen you treating someone very, very well who's actually an enemy that's looking to destroy your whole kingdom. And you've done nothing but treat this guy with generosity, honor. You become BFFs with him. And I'm just afraid that you're not going to see when he comes to betray you. And so Yunnan is like, whoa, whoa, what are you talking about, man? Who are you talking about? And the vizier's like, it's pretty obvious. It's Dubon, the sage. And Yunnan is like, whoa, hold up now. This dude, he's my best friend. He cured me of leprosy when no one else could. You know, there's no one in the world, east or west, that's like this guy. No other doctor can cure me like he did. He goes off on this big tirade, like, you are a jerk. Uh, How dare you accuse him? Oh, (laughs) and to add insult to injury of the vizier, the king goes on. He's like, I'm going to give him 1,000 more dinars today because I trust him that much. He's like, and I think it's your own envy that's making you say this. And it reminds me of a story. And that's the story of King Sinbad. I think that you're just jealous and you want me to kill Dubon the same way that King Sinbad killed his falcon. And just like King Sinbad, I would regret it. And so Yunnan goes on to tell the nested tale within the nested tale of King Sinbad and his falcon. There was a Persian king who loved going out hunting, and he had raised a falcon, which was his companion day and night. And he would take this falcon hunting with him every time he went out hunting, and it even had its own little golden bowl hung around its neck, which I don't know how easy that is to fly with, (laughs) but that is neither here nor there. Just know that it he has that gold bowl. So one day the king and his 
a big group of attendants went out hunting and they had cornered and trapped a gazelle and they had it completely surrounded. And the king said, if anyone lets this gazelle leap over them without catching it, I will put them to death. <laughs> Which I'm like, guys, calm down. Toxic masculinity much? <laughs> you don't have to threaten to kill somebody just because, oh man, settle down. This is Katrina's personal asides. <laughs> the gazelle comes over to the king and seemed to kind of like bend down and bow to the king. And so the king bowed back to the gazelle. Which was dumb because the gazelle just <laughs> leapt up over him. Why would the gazelle be bowing to you, dude? Uh, Why he's like he's like, oh, this is such a respectful gazelle. No, it's gonna leap over you. <laughs> anyway, so the gazelle <laughs> leapt right over this idiot. And you know, he was frustrated and he looks over and his men are all kind of like looking at each other and smirking and like winking at each other, and he's like, What? What is it? And his advisor is like, well, they're, you know, we just think it's funny because you said you were going to like kill whoever let the gazelle like leap over them. And you kind of just, you know, and the king was like, "Ugh, I'll go get the gazelle myself. So he got on his horse and like rode off and everyone's kind of like, yeah, OK, this dude, whatever. So he rides off to chase after the gazelle. And pretty soon he corners the gazelle against this like rocky embankment. So he's got the gazelle cornered and he lets his falcon off of his arm to fly at the gazelle and the falcon claws at the gazelle's eyes to blind it. And the king is able to go over and kill the gazelle when it's dead. He field dresses it, loads it back up onto his horse. And by this time, they're very, very thirsty. King Sindbad and the horse are thirsty and he assumes the falcon. So he looks around to see what is nearby and he sees this tree that has this golden liquid coming down off of it. And he was like, oh, my goodness, I don't know what is on this tree, but I'm so thirsty. I definitely want some of that. So he takes the bowl off of his falcon and he puts it under the tree until the bowl fills up with this like golden liquid. And he goes to drink some and his falcon flies and knocks the golden bowl out of his hand, spilling the liquid onto the ground. And the king is like, Falcon, why would you do this? This is so frustrating. So again, he goes over the tree, has it fill up with liquid. He's about to drink it. The falcon again flies over and knocks the bowl and the golden liquid falls onto the ground. So the king is getting super frustrated with his falcon who is not cooperating and all he wants is a drink. So again, he goes over to the tree and like fills up the bowl. And when he goes to drink it a third time, the falcon swoops and knocks the bowl a third time. And so the king takes out his sword and slashes off the wing of his falcon. And the falcon like looks up toward the top of the tree and King Sindabad looks up at the tree and he sees at the top a nest of vipers and mm. the poison is dripping out of their mouths and going down the side of the tree. And that's what the golden liquid was that was coming off of the tree. And Sindabad immediately realizes that 
the Falcon was trying to save him that whole time. And he immediately regrets his rash actions as he holds his Falcon while it dies. So the jerk, envious, and ugly vizier responds to the king, Yunnan, telling the story by saying, No, no, no. Sinbad was acting out of necessity. I see nothing wrong with what he did. And I myself... I'm just acting out of sympathy for you so that you can realize that I'm right. It's like, otherwise, don't you know that you are going to meet the same fate as the vizier who schemed against the prince? Remember that story? And so he goes on to tell a story of his own. So there once was a vizier who was in the service of his king. But the king's son was passionate about hunting, and so the king was always sending his vizier away with his son to go hunting, which the vizier was not really that keen on doing. So one day the son was pursuing a beast, and they were about to lose sight of the beast, and the vizier was like, oh, I think I saw it running out into the open desert. You should go ride your horse out into the open desert. And so the prince, on his horse, races out into the desert and quickly figures out, wait, nope, the beast did not go this way. Oh, man. Now I'm out here. But he looks down and he sees a beautiful woman crying. And I just want people to remember that um, ugly or beautiful, uh, it doesn't matter. What matters are your actions. And (laughs) I mean, we'll come back to it. So this beautiful woman, she is crying. And so the prince asks her, like, what's wrong? Like, why are you crying? And she was like... Oh, I was riding on my horse and I was overcome by the heat and I fainted and I fell onto the ground and I need help. And so the prince was like, of course, let me help you. So he pulls her up onto his horse and they're like walking like back through the desert and they see this kind of like old abandoned building that's half like crumpling to the ground and the woman says oh i need to go to the bathroom can we stop here for a minute which i just like want to point out hardly ever in stories do people need to use the restroom and it used to always bug me that i'm like why do people in tv shows never need to use the bathroom like i'm always just like imagining during these like long chase scenes and movies that somebody's like okay i know we're all like freaking out right now but i have to pee like I just like never know like why that never comes up anyway so I love that she's like I have to use the bathroom this is a good place because she couldn't stop to pee anywhere in the open desert because it wouldn't be modest right yeah but she sees like an abandoned building and she's like oh I can go pee behind that and nobody will see me and so of course the prince is like sure you go and do that so she goes into the abandoned building and she like does not come out for a long time And so the prince is a little concerned about her, like, not coming back. So he goes to look for her and he finds her and she now has lost the appearance of a beautiful woman. And she is clearly a ghoula, an undead who feasts upon the bodies of the living. It's like a a zombie. Yeah. Yeah. But she is talking to her ghoul children because, of course... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Gulas can be mothers too. So anyway, 
she's standing there with her children and she's telling them that she's like, guess what? I have brought you a nice, fat, young man for dinner tonight. It's going to be delicious. It's going to be amazing. Because even Gula mothers have to prepare dinner for their children, I guess. It's fine. I'm not salty. Where's their father is what I want to know. (laughs) (laughs) Katrina's random angry asides. So he quickly like goes back to his horse and he's like shaking and stuff. So then like around the corner comes like this lady like back again. And she's just like, oh, you look really upset. Like what's wrong? And he was like, I have an enemy who wants to kill me. And she's like, what? That's a weird problem to have. Aren't you a prince? Isn't that fear kind of like beneath you? Like, just pay him off. Give him money. And he's like, no, this enemy doesn't want money. They want me dead. And she's like, well, I guess you could pray about that. And he was like, oh, yeah, I could. And then he prays to God that he would be rescued from this gula and she was like oh no and she basically like shrivels up and dies because he prayed to have her murdered not to have her murdered he prays to be saved and so that's was god's answer so he hops back onto his horse and he rides as fast as he can back to his palace and he goes to his dad and he tells them that the vizier had purposely led him into the open desert where he knew that the gula was so that he would be killed and the king was furious at his vizier for having tricked his son and he has the vizier killed So then the vizier is like, see, don't you see how this is going to work for you, your majesty? This prince trusted this vizier who ended up trying to kill him. And that's just like Dubon the sage. You trust him. You've made him your friend. But just like he cured you by giving you something to hold in your hand, he can come up with some sort of a way to poison you by giving you something to hold in your hand as well. And for some reason, the king is like, oh, wow, you're absolutely right. He could totally kill me so easily. I trust him so much. If he hadn't told me that that polo stick had something on it that was going to cure me, I wouldn't even have known that that was what the cure was going to be. Like, he can kill me with something I hold. He could kill me with something I smell. And so he's like, oh, my gosh. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my loyal vizier. What what should we do about Dubon? And so the vizier's like, look, I mean, the only thing that you can do is you call him here, and no matter what he says, you got to kill him. And then you'll be safe, you know, if if he, he can't he can't kill you if he's dead already. So just betray him before he betrays you. And the king's like, okay, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Send for Dubon, bring him here. And Dubon, who like the past three days has been coming and being greeted with feasts and presents and money and chilling and hugs from the king, walks in and he's like super stoked to see who he thinks is still his new BFF, the king. Except the king doesn't give him a big hug, and he just asks him, hey, do you know why I've sent for you? Dubon, not really suspecting anything so much at this moment, is like, hey, I don't know anything. He he says, quote, no one knows what is hidden except for God. Boy, is that true in this case. So the king says, I've sent for you so that I can kill you. And Dubon was surprised. He's like, (laughs) wait a second, what? Why should you kill me? Like, what did I do? What is my crime? And the king's like, look, I heard that you're a spy. I've heard you come to kill me. So, like, sorry, man. I just have to kill you before you kill me. 
And so the king calls for his executioner and he says, cut off this traitor's head so that we can be free from his evil doing. And Dubon is like, no, 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 please just spare me. If you spare me, God will spare you. But if you don't, then he will kill you. And at this point, the fisherman says to the djinn trapped in the bottle, see, Ifrit, (laughs) Dubon the sage is saying to the king, what I said to you, but you would not give up your intent to kill me. So the king insisted. He's like, look, I'm not going to be safe unless I put you to death. You cured me with something I held in my hand. I can't guarantee that you're not going to do the same thing to kill me with something or maybe kill me with something I smell. I don't know why he's so like fixated on the fact that he could smell something that was going to kill him. But Yeah, anyway. he should have been fixated on another one of his senses, actually. <laughs> and Dubon is still just incredulous. He's like, look, I did a good thing for you. I cured you. And the way you're rewarding me is you're just going to kill me. And the king is like, yep, going to kill you without any more delay. And so at this point, Dubon's like, dang, the king is for sure going to kill me. So he starts crying and then reciting poetry to himself because he's reminded of some poem that his situation is alike to. So the executioner comes in, blindfolds Dubon, unsheaths his sword, and he asks the king's permission to continue with the execution. And Dubon's just sitting there crying and he's imploring the king, please spare me. And if you spare me, God will save you. But if you don't spare me, then God is going to slay you just like you slay me. And then he recites a little more poetry and says to the king, look, if this is how you're going to reward me, it's the crocodile's reward. And so the king's like, okay, wait, hold up. Before I kill you, tell me the story of the crocodile. And we go into another nested tale. Just kidding, because Dubon's like, look, man, you're about to kill me. I'm in no mood for telling any more stories. (laughs) All I'm going to say to you is that if you spare me, then God will spare you. But if you don't, then God will take justice on you and kill you as well. So at this point, there's some people arguing. Some of the other viziers come in and kind of argue on Dubon's behalf and say, like, look, he saved you. Why are you killing him? And the king just repeats the same thing. Like, look, he's a spy. He's going to kill me. If I don't kill him, then I'm definitely going to. Just in order to be safe, I got to kill him. And so Dubon one last time begs for mercy, but then realizes, you know what? The king's made up his mind. And so he says, look, okay, if I'm going to be killed, at least give me a little stay of execution so that I can go to my house, give instructions to my family, prepare myself for death, settle my debts, give away my books of medicine. It's like, and I have this one special book that I'm going to present to you to be kept in your treasury. And so the king, a little intrigued, is like, oh, well, what, what, what's in this book? What's so special about it? And so Dubon says, well, there are innumerable secrets in this book, but least of which is that if you cut off my head and then open three pages and read three lines from the left-hand page, my head will speak to you and answer your questions. And so the astonished king, quote, trembled with joy, which is a disturbing reaction to hearing that type of news, and said, when I cut off your head, you're going to talk to me? And Dubon's like, yup, it's pretty amazing. And so, (laughs) uh, no, no, that's not what happens. Oh, but I'm like, that's hilarious. uh, Dubon says, and so Dubon says, yup. And the king's like, well, that's amazing. Let's cut this dude's head off. But they do give Dubon the, the day to settle, go back to his house, settle his affairs, bring this magical book back 
to the palace. And he's also got this little case with this powder. So he asks for a plate and he pours this powder out onto the plate and spreads it all out. And he says to the king, hey, take the book, but don't open it until after you've cut my head off. And once you've cut my head off, put my head on this plate and have it pressed into the powder. And at that, the blood will stop flowing out of my head and then you can open the book. And so the king takes the book and is like, all right, let's see something cool. Gives the orders to cut Dubon's head off, which he does, puts it on the plate, presses it into the powder. And just like Dubon said, the blood stopped flowing from the head and Dubon, the disembodied head now, opened his eyes and speaks to the king and says, oh, king, open the book. And when the king did this, he found the pages were stuck together. So he puts his finger in his mouth and starts turning another page you know, wetting it with his spit, tries to go to the third pages. And he opens all these pages like, uh, there's no writing in these pages. And Dubon's like, hey, just open more pages, man. And so the king starts opening three more. And afterwards, he feels poison that the book has been impregnated with starts spreading throughout him that he's been licking his fingers, touching the book, putting them back in his mouth to open more pages. And the king starts becoming racked with convulsions and starts crying out that he's been poisoned while Dubon once again recites poetry while watching the king die a very painful and excruciating death. And this poem I will quote because it's a (laughs) BA thing to do while killing your enemy while you're a disembodied head. (laughs) They wielded power with arrogance, but soon it was as though their power had never been. If they had acted justly, they would have met with justice. But they were tyrants, and time played the tyrant in return, afflicting them with grievous trials. It was as though here fate was telling them, this is a return for that, and time cannot be blamed. And as soon as Dubon's head finished speaking the words of this death metal recitation of a poem, the king fell dead. Now then, Ifrit, this is the fisherman talking to the Ifrit in the bottle. That had he spared Dubon, God would have spared him. But as he refused and looked to have him killed, God destroyed him. Had you spared me, God would have spared you. So the fisherman was basically like, nope, that's the story. And I don't want to end up like Dubon the sage who did a nice thing and then, you know, got killed for it. And I gave you the opportunity to not be the king Yunnan in this situation, but now you refuse. So now I am going to throw you into the sea. And of course, the Ifrit, the djinn was like, no, 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 please, please don't do that. Don't do that. I promise that I will make you rich if you do not do that. And the fisherman was like, why would I believe you? Like, we've already <laughs> had this conversation. Like, I don't want to be tricked. And the effort was like, free me. This is a time for generosity. And I promise you that I shall never act against you again, but I'll help make you rich beyond your imagination. You will never have to work another day in your life. So the fisherman was like, okay, if you promise that when you are free, you will not hurt me. And the Ifrit was like, okay, no, I promise. I swear by the greatest name of God that I will not hurt you. And so the fisherman pried off once again the seal of Solomon from the top Mm. of the bottle. And out came the Ifrit. (laughs) 
And once again, the smoke rose up until it had all come out of the bottle and it formed the hideous form of the gin. And the gin bent down and he picked up the bottle and he hurled it into the sea. And then the fisherman pooped his pants. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I just want people to know I didn't make that part up because I enjoy stuff like that. It literally says the man soiled his trousers. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating to make the story, you know, scatologically humorous for my own benefit. It just is scatologically humorous. Love it. So the guy poops his pants and he was like, oh, no, please fulfill your promise. Please fulfill your promise to me. You gave me your word. Swearing that you would not be treacherous. And the Ifrit, like, bends down laughing. And he's like, no, no, buddy, calm down, calm down. I'm not going to do anything to you. Follow me. And then they start walking off into the desert. And, okay, once again, I don't know if anybody has ever tried, like, walking around with poop in their pants, but it's very, like, uncomfortable. <laughs> so, like, this part of the story, I would have liked it if, like, he had had just, like, another, like, quick change of pants or if the Efrit had, like, magic to poop out of his pants. Because, I'm sorry, I just keep thinking about, like, oh, he's walking through the desert and there's, like, poop in his pants. It's very uncomfortable for me, like, mentally to, like, think about. But it's fine. Yeah. So the Ifrit started laughing and he's like, no, 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 fisherman, calm down, calm down. Just follow me. And so the fisherman did. And the fisherman was still feeling uneasy as they left the city limits and started to climb a mountain and then went down into a wide valley. And at the bottom of the valley, there was a pool of water and the Ifrit waded into the water, into the middle of it, and he asked the fisherman to follow him, which the fisherman did. So when the Ifrit stopped, he told the fisherman to cast his net. And the fisherman cast his net, and when he pulled the net back in, it was filled with fishes made of jewels. Oh. And... Which might be misleading because it it's like it contained colored fish of like different colors that would fetch riches or jeweled fish. So it's hard to I'm like, I'm assuming I'm just going to say that their fish is made out of jewels. So the Ifrit said, present these to the sultan and he will enrich you. And then he said, I have been in the sea for 1,800 years, and this is the first time I have seen the face of the land, so this is all I know how to help you. And with that, he bid the fisherman farewell, and he stamped his foot on the earth, and the earth swallowed up the Ifrit into the crack, and he was gone. Hmm. And the fisherman goes on and sells the fish, and the story isn't quite over, because they, the fish lead us into another journey. But that was the end for the fisherman who became rich and lived out the rest of his life in comfort for his good deeds. Nice. I was so sure that Ifrit was going to just Oh, absolutely. lay the smackdown on that guy. <laughs> I was like there is nothing really that is like going to stop that from happening from like yeah. getting like the smackdown laid on him. So first off, I hope that the backstory of King Solomon enriched the story. Yeah. 
So when people are reading folklore or other stories, there's always parts that are like, this is weird. I think that I'm missing some context to the story and that's making it hard to like completely appreciate the story. And so I, I wanted to put that little bit of information in there so that people who were only familiar with the King Solomon, who is just in a section of the Old Testament and you know, it's just known for kind of being wise and spouting off wisdom. They they would have some context for why he suddenly is popping up as the person who's captured these like demons yeah. inside of this story. So Marina Warner says about, you know, the the Solomon of the Old Testament that in the West we might be familiar with. She says, the strong contrast between this Solomon and the Solomon who commands the jinn is crucial, I believe, to the eventual huge success of the Eastern stories in Europe. Because the Thousand of One Nights are familiar enough in their stories to be easy to get into, but they also are foreign in the West enough to be really engaging and fresh. Like, even though these stories are thousands of years old, they have a freshness to them. Their characters are still familiar and still, like, very surprising. And I think about the genie of the lamp that we might be familiar with because of Walt Disney in Mm -hmm. Aladdin. So when I was picturing a genie, I'm picturing a genie coming out of a bottle and being like, guess what? I'm going to give you three wishes. Like you're super lucky because you hold the lamp. You're now in charge of me. You know, a a deal like that. That's what I'm used to. Yeah. So then when we meet this gin in a bottle and he's like, guess what? It's time to die. We're like, I'm going to let you choose how (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) it it's, it's so it's different from what we're expecting. And so it's a little bit more surprising and engaging when you're reading the story. Oh, yeah, especially because of these, like, misconceptions that we have. We're more able to be surprised by something like that. Where maybe back in the day, people knew, you know, like, they knew what Jin were like, what the genie were like. So they knew that it's like, oh, man, this is going to be a troubling situation. But because we have these, like, wrong preconceived notions, it's all the more surprising and interesting. And then it played into what we were just talking about there, too, at the end with, Okay, now that we've seen like, oh man, this Jin can just do whatever he wants. He's just super powerful. Like he's going to kill this guy. Like he's he's not beholden to his word on this guy. That's why we assumed that he was going to you know, not follow through on his promise to give the the fisherman mercy and just straight up kill him at the end. But it's like that's not what happened. You know, so we were like building our own idea of what these characters, what these creatures were like which made it interesting as we you know learned more about them and surprising when they acted in ways that we didn't expect which was yeah. super fun and it was the only thing that happened that could have changed the jinn's mind about his actions at the end were the stories that were told yeah and that's something which is I also talk fascinating about. yeah because that's been the that's been the theme so far of the stories that we've talked about is it all goes back to the overarching story, which is Scheherazade trying to save her life by changing the mind of the king by telling him stories. And that's what keeps happening in all <laughs> of the stories that she tells is, hey, this person is helping this other person understand 
something different and change their mind about some course of action that they have decided to take that may not be the most just, maybe you might consider doing this yourself without without being so forward about it. You know, she's got to get it, giving herself this separation so that she can bring up these ideas without being or seeming confrontational, which is just genius. It is. It's like super brilliant. And then also, I've been thinking about this this week. I was able to do like a Zoom conference where Jack Zipes was talking about um, storytelling and like the role of a storyteller. And if people don't know who Jack Zipes is, he is just one of the biggest names in fairy tale studies. If you Google his name, you'll find tons and tons of books. He was a professor for the longest time. He's retired now. But one of the things that he talked about in that conference about storytellers was that the storyteller's job is to not just entertain people, but to get them talking about the values of the community, like through storytelling. And it's fascinating because like Shahrazad and all these stories are bringing up that the issue of like, okay, let's talk about values. Like there's always like a question that's kind of posed or a point that's trying to be made before something goes into like a nested tail. Mm -hmm. And those transition points are fascinating because they, they give context for like why the story is being told and why it's important. Cause sometimes if the stories are by themselves standing alone, it's like, okay, that was a weird story, but like, what does it mean? And it usually means something connected with the nested tale that is around it. And so I want to talk about the Visir and why I think he's wrong about everything. <laughs> <laughs> the the one in Dubon's story? Yes, Dubon's uh, Visir. Because, like, when King Yunnan was telling the story about the falcon... I thought like that was spot on because what he was saying was like, like Sage Dubon is basically like the Falcon. He has done nothing but be helpful to me. He has done nothing but goodness to me. And if I were to just suddenly assume bad intentions on his part and kill him, I would deeply regret that. Yeah. And And the vizier is like, no, he did the right thing by killing the Falcon, which is like, dude, were you listening to the story? Yeah, because he, he he basically, he was like, oh, no, he had to do that like out of necessity. Sindabad, King Sindabad acted out of necessity and I can see nothing wrong in that. And it's like, you can see nothing wrong in that story that we just heard about a man who killed something that was trying to help him. Yeah. That says a lot about the vizier to me yeah and like where his thinking is at that he's like he's like oh no if you've got to kill something for being disrespectful whether it was trying to help you or not you've got to kill him yeah it's like, very that's a really bad message it's yeah. very short-sighted and like it doesn't matter he knocked the bull out of your hand and that was rude and he did it three times and it's like if if knocking the bull out of your hand is a punishment worth its death then you just got to do it it doesn't matter the reasons why and it's like yeah. man and he couldn't even make that strong of an argument about Dubon either. His his whole point no. was just like, I think he's going to kill you. He could cure you this way, so why couldn't he kill you? Which is like, okay, yes, that is true. 
Dubon was smart enough that if he wanted to kill the king, he could come up with a clever way to do it because he did, but only after he realized that there was no way that he was going to come back. So he was just getting his revenge in the most metal way possible. Oh man. And Dulahan would totally approve because a headless <laughs> horseman with his talking head reciting metal lyrics. Oh, I actually was going to go back to something that I read in the Arabian Nights, a companion by Robert Irwin. I feel like we all know what book I'm talking about by now. Yeah. And if um, we haven't talked about the Arabian Nights without bringing up one of his books, it's like, have we really even talked about Arabian Nights? Yeah. So here is a quote. It says, in an 11th century grimoire or sorcerer's manual, the Jail of the Sage, later translated into Latin as Picatrice, the story is told of how in old Haran, when the demon worshippers who dwelt there were desirous of knowing what was to happen in the future, they would hunt out a dark-complexioned man with eyebrows that joined together and blue eyes. This man would be overpowered and stripped. The unhappy victim was then plunged into a barrel containing sesame oil with only his head remaining above the surface of the oil. The head inhaled stupefying drugs, which were burnt before it, while certain rituals were performed. The blue-eyed man was then macerated in the oil for 40 days until all the flesh had fallen from his bones. After 40 days, it was possible to detach the head from the rest of the body at the first vertebra. The head, whose blue eyes no longer blinked, was set in a niche where it gave out prophecies. And one philosopher historian condemned this practice by saying, this is detestable sorcery. However, it shows what remarkable things exist in the world of man. (laughs) And so that head moment of like cutting off his head and like hearing it speak, that wasn't like an unheard of thing. Like when these stories like were being told, there was like an understanding about like, that wasn't a like, because for us, I feel like I've never read a story like that. It kind of came out of left field, yeah. which is a sports reference I <laughs> just decided to use for no reason. It seemed to come out of nowhere, but it's interesting because it's like, no, it actually, there is some kind of like history. Were, were people doing this all over the Middle East? No. <laughs> this right. was in some... But the... S- the stories were yes. known. Yes, the stories were known. It was like folk knowledge that's kind of like, oh, if you take a a dark-haired man who has a unibrow and blue eyes and you soak him in sesame oil for 40 days. It's like <laughs> yeah. where it's like it's it's so much work that you know that like no one actually ever tried this. And you would try it one time, and I'm just gonna go out on a limb here, it wouldn't work. Yeah. And then you'd be like, ah, maybe this isn't the right spell. And then you'd stop. (laughs) Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm not saying people did this in the Middle Ages, in the Middle East. But, yeah, it was in stories. It was, like, known. Um, But, yeah, such a metal (laughs) moment of him being like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you cut off my head and then you put it in these powders, I will talk to you for a little bit after I die. And they're like, that's such a neat trick. And the thing he says after you die is like, you get what you deserve, sucker. Yeah. 
And in Dubon's oh. defense, too, it's like he gave him plenty of opportunity to spare him. He's like, dude, you're being crazy. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Yeah. And he finally was like, all right. Yeah. You're gonna get you're gonna get what you deserve. But I was gonna go back to the story that the vizier said, which I thought was so interesting because the vizier was the one who told the story about the wicked vizier, vizier who got the prince attacked by a gula. Yeah. And I was like, I don't understand why he would have told a story that it undermines the point he was trying to make. I yeah, felt like, like I didn't think that story even made sense for his position. I agree. Because <laughs> I think he was trying to say like, oh, this person said that they were someone that was loyal to the prince, but they ended up betraying him. And it's like, buddy, that's exactly what you're doing <laughs> right now by telling this story and trying to get somebody else killed. Yeah. It's like, how can he just unironically say that? But. <laughs> The interesting thing is, like, I've had experiences like that in my life where I have friends who will be telling a story about something, like, unfair that's happened to them or whatever. And I probably have done it myself. But while telling whatever story that they're telling, they're showing how they're doing the exact same thing and they just don't see it themselves, you know? Yeah, that they... So it is realistic, (laughs) even though it's you know, unfortunate and kind of messed up. I love that point, Jeff, that it's like, uh, sometimes we all are a little blinded by like our, our own ill logic. Yeah. Where we think like, Oh, this person is doing this unfair thing. I wish I was doing that unfair thing. (laughs) Or, you know, yeah. Like something like that where it's right. And, and even the King, it's so scary to, to be someone seeing that. Like when you have a friend that's like that, like they're so entrenched in some position or some way of thinking or whatever, that they can't even see the inconsistencies in what they're saying, especially in this situation where it's like, it's the King who had gotten his thinking poisoned by this irrational person that you cannot talk sense into into them. And it's like, oh my gosh, they're going to take this illogical, irrational, baseless thinking, and they're going to do things that are going to have some real bad consequences for, th- for maybe themselves yeah. or maybe for someone else, you know, like, or all of the above has happened in here because I don't think Dubon went on living as a disembodied head forever. I think he's his days were numbered in that form as well, but it's just yeah. like, no, and it, yeah, and it's, it's like, and who scary. was, yeah, it's like, and who was left alive? Yeah. The Vizier, who was yeah. the one in the first place, who was the treacherous one. Yeah. And this is another reason, don't, don't keep sneaky, treacherous, back-talking people in your life. No. But that, I mean, it's also scary, because it's one of those things where it's like, how do you know who to trust? Yeah. Because, like, Dupon had done something that was very, very helpful to the king, but also by doing something really helpful to the king, he was proving how powerful and capable he was. And, I mean, you always hope that people who are powerful and capable will use their powers for good, and I do think that Dupon the yeah. Sage was always going to use his powers for good. I don't know. He apparently knew some, also some other not great stuff. Yeah. But... I mean, I think that that comes with like the territory because it's like any person who is brilliant 
creating something knows that the thing that they're creating in the wrong hands could be used for evil. Yeah, but that's what you're, I do see what you're saying is like, how do you yeah. know who to trust? And yeah, I think because- what it comes down to is, like in this situation, you have to trust them until they give you a reason not to. Yeah. There was no reason. There was nothing that Dubon did that would lead someone to mistrust him. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was just, like you said, the fear of his power, which is, again, a dangerous thing. And that's the only thing that the vizier could play off of to to kind of convince the king. But also his vizier, he didn't do, in the story at least, he didn't do anything either that would peg him as someone not to be trusted. Right. It it was just he, for whatever, because I, I mean, they said that he was kind of like an ill-dispositioned person like beforehand. Right. And so we don't know how long, you know, this guy was maybe doing similar things to other people where he's like, you know, gossip and all this stuff behind everybody's back doing like pulling strings. I mean, yeah, we don't know how he ended up getting the job that he got if it was through having other people murdered before. Right. But you bring up a good point where in the story, he didn't do anything that would be worthy of distrusting him either. But it's kind of like when you've got two people that you're not sure if you can trust them or not. I don't know. Like it might be wise to how do I want to say this? It might be wise to wait. Exactly. Someone (laughs) brings a suspicion to you like, hey, this person that has done this great thing for you. I know you might be blinded by the fact that they've done this great thing to you, but I think that they're a spy that is going to try to harm you. Don't immediately go out and just believe that person who you don't have, you don't, you have no evidence that that is the case. That's very surprising. Maybe you don't have to ignore it. Maybe you can take that person's word and say, okay, this is something that we need to watch and find a way to test or prove, you know, like believe, but verify Yeah. But if you can't then verify that that is the case, don't do something so drastic as having that person killed just based on these suspicions alone. You know, like you need some kind of proof. So there was something that could have been done. Yeah. And I think where the king went wrong is by not examining the stories that were being told. Like, because what we just kind of talked about and thought about, you know, with the vizier's story, his logic didn't make sense. And the king yeah. could have said, you know what? I like, I see the point that you're trying to make. I'm not sure the story makes that point. I will take under advisement what you're saying to be careful, but let's not do anything rash. Yeah. Because I don't think that the vizier made a good point for his. I side. agree. It- and that was one thing about the story that kind of bothered me, and I'll give it the benefit of being a tale within a tale within a tale within a tale or whatever, and the fisherman maybe wasn't the, that great of a storyteller or whatever, <laughs> but like the vizier, I was, I did not buy that the king would have been swayed by what the vizier was saying because there was no proof. You know, it's like, that's a little bit of a stretch that the king even went along with it in the first place based on what we saw. Yeah. And so maybe, and I mean, another thing that goes into it is, I mean, something we've talked about too before is like the translations. So I like that, that you're, yeah. you're like, there, there might even be stuff missing from this story that makes it incomplete, that gives us like incomplete knowledge about why the king chose to do what he did. Yeah. And the other thing about it too is with this being a story within a story, 
the whole purpose of it, it doesn't matter why the king believed him. The king believed him and did this thing and was not merciful to Dubon, who had done something good, which is to prove the point that the fisherman was trying to make. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, it doesn't matter because yeah. it was this whole story doesn't have to be completely logical. It just has to serve the purpose of the reason why the fisherman was telling it to try to convince the genie why he can't trust him. Yeah. So there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot there. And it's funny how we've spent so much time talking about this Dubon the Sage story when it's like a tale within a tale. Yeah. That it was the tale be it was like the tale that was being told to the genie to be like, okay. So yeah, it's like, okay, did the genie learn the lesson? And I think that yeah, yeah it's like, yeah, the genie did, which because he ended up being merciful. And that's one of the things I love about the Knights too, which may be going a little bit off, is that sometimes the point of the particular tale being told is in a different level of depth. Sometimes it's at the very external frame story with Scheherazade. Yeah. Sometimes it's in the story that she's telling, that she's trying to tell to her husband, the king. Sometimes this, the point is actually within a tale within that tale that then, you know, the part of the tale that is inspiring you to tell that part is so you, so that you can tell that story, go back. And like you said, with the fisherman, the fisherman story then goes on to be something else that's probably going to spur tales that are more important or, you know, different. Yeah. Like it, it's so complex that the tales within tales, just because it's so it, it gets kind of complex and confusing. But I guess the point that I'm trying to say is that. I may have the tendency and other people might have the tendency to discredit certain stories because they're just a tale within a tale within a tale. You're like, oh, this isn't the main story. So this isn't actually that important. But sometimes it is. Like one of the best little nuggets that I got out of this was that story of Sinbad and his falcon. That's like a fable that you can tell to your children to help them to learn, you know? And so it's like and part all of, of these me- things are working together to create this theme and this idea that's being reinforced at every level. So just because it's in another story doesn't mean it's unimportant, I guess is the point I'm trying to make. What's interesting about the story of King Sindabad and his falcon is that there was like a children's animated TV show that was called Adventures from the Book of Virtues. And I was like, I swear I have seen this story before in like cartoon form. Uh And it is. There's an episode that's on self-discipline. But mm-hmm. inside the story that they tell, the king in question is actually Genghis Khan. Huh. And it's, again, it's he couldn't control his temper, so he killed his pet hawk after it tried to stop him from drinking water that was poisoned by a snake. And so that kind of makes me want to, like, look deeper into that story. Because like we've talked about before, sometimes these stories have... Like parts that have traveled, right? Like all yeah, that along. is fascinating. Like you said, that it's in that one. It was Genghis Khan, not Sinbad. So it's like maybe this is a story, like you said, that is is common in other places or has traveled other places. And there's different versions that we could find. I want to point out just very briefly because we're not going to be getting into them at all on this episode. But I want to point out that there are other similar stories that people might find. One of them is The Prince and the Gula, and that's actually inside The Thousand and One Nights. It's night 582 in volume two of the Penguin Classics. And it is essentially the exact same story that someone uses 
for about the exact same reason as before. <laughs> um, and scholars have noted that it's very interesting that there are some small tales that seem to reoccur in the stories with only slight deviations. And this one, I believe she does not have children. So slight deviation, just a little bit there. Um, but then more interestingly, there is the story in the Grimm's Brothers collection of The Spirit in the Bottle. Mm. That one is really similar in plot. And then The Fisherman and His Wife in the Brim's in the Grimm Brothers collection. That one, some of the characters and their actions are familiar, but the story is it's it's a much more uh, tenuous connection to this story. Mm-hmm. But The Spirit in the Bottle and the Brothers Grimm collection are really close. So yeah, again, wow. I'm not going to get into the the whys of that now or sit, tell you those stories to compare them and contrast them on this episode. I just wanted people to know that like they those exist. That's super fascinating. Because we are going to do an episode where we talk about the Brothers Grimm, the stories that they connected with uh, the Thousand and One Nights, and whether or not there actually exists a connection. So that'll be another episode, but I wanted to point that out. Ooh, that'll be fun. And I actually, I love the point that you were making about how like inside the tales, there is just like different stuff that can be used. Like, like I liked this little nugget that was like inside of like a poem. It said, whoever helps those who deserve no help will be like one who rescues a hyena. And I'm like, you know what? That's a nice little like tidbit of like knowledge where it's like, okay, as wonderful as being like a kind, compassionate, helpful person is, sometimes maybe there there is like a line to be drawn in like who gets the help mm-hmm. and who it's better to let go because... You know, like in the case with the the gin, it's like, oh, you might let him out. And that's so kind of you. But if it's a person that's not going to appreciate the help that is being given and will just take that opportunity to hurt you, it's like, yeah, mm, maybe there's something to be said for not helping everybody. But that's yeah. that again, like. I mean, I th- I feel like me talking in circles around that point kind of proves the point of that, like, these tales and all good stories are supposed to put us, like, in conversation with, like, what our values are and to open up a discussion into what the greater truth is, like, inside of something. But that is great. And I do like that you pointed that out. And I think that is one of the things that points out what is so interesting about the knights and a lot of these stories and discussions that we have about all sorts of things from all sorts of cultures is that it brings up interesting discussions that we can have about our values because there's so many times where the value that they were trying to teach in the story is either something that we agree with today and we think is still valuable or it's something that we disagree with today and then going into that and saying like, okay, what is it about this that bothers us? Why don't we like this? It's something that's so great at, even if 
there are things that we disagree with. We can under by understanding and discussing why we can learn more about ourselves and what things are important to us. So it's like, it doesn't matter that these things are so displaced in time and culture because it starts conversations that ultimately come back to ourselves and help us to grow as people, which is again, the joy of this podcast. Like I feel like I'm learning so much about different cultures and about history and about all this stuff as well. But it's like, I'm learning things about what is important to me. And I feel like it is making me a better person in some way, you know? And it's like, and that's really cool. Especially when people talk about how all these tales are garbage stories that no one thinks were deserving of being written down. And yet it's bringing so much value to my life to be talking about them with you, you know, on a nearly weekly basis. Thank you for listening to the fairy tellers. If you are enjoying what we're doing, please support us by leaving us a review or share us with your friends. Special thanks to Andrew Forey for our music and Clarice Inch for our artwork. If you are a dreamer, come in. If you are a dreamer, a wisher, a liar, a hoper, a prayer, a magic bean buyer. If you're a pretender, come sit by my fire, for we have some flax golden tails to spin. Come in, come in. Invitation by Shel Silverstein. In an 11th century grimoire, which is a sorcerer's manual, or also a, a witch's manual, it's a spell book. I think it's pronounced gr- grimoire. Grim- grimoire, I believe you. So in an 11th century grimoire, let me just double check. Grimoire. I feel like you're right. Grimoire. I'm pretty sure it's a grimoire. French word. Grimoire. 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 grimoire.